Genesis 4 in your Bibles, once again looking at verses 1 through 8. Uh, Last time we were together, we walked through a practical understanding of the events of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We learned that Adam and Eve had two sons, the eldest named Cain, the younger named Abel, that they each offered to the Lord a sacrifice. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was rejected. This made Cain angry, and his countenance changed. God then confronted Cain on this, told him that he would be accepted if he did well, and if he did sin, if he didn't do well, sin was waiting at the door. Sin was seeking to overcome. And we concluded our time last week with a call from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, to be sober, to be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That sin lies at that door of a heart of rebellion. That sin lies at the door of a heart of compromise. So we resist steadfast in the faith, 1 Peter 5, 9 says. Now today is the first of what we might call application messages. I call it a part two. We'll have a part three as well. Drawing applications from the, 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 the uh, text, from the account that we find in Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. The events of that day in Genesis 4 are significant, not just as an historical account of the things that happened in the, the, ch- the chain of events related to mankind, but also for what it teaches about the nature of man in its fallen state. Recall, this is actually the first account of the nature of man in his fallen state, uh, absent what we read about Adam and Eve with them hiding themselves and being clothed. This is the first uh, account that we find of interaction that gives us insight into interaction of of man in his fallen state. And we're going to jump right in. And what I'd like to do first is just read the passage again together, get, us, get our minds back into focus of, of, of what we talked about last week, and then we'll, we'll do a couple of points of application as our sermon today. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 tell us this. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of, the, of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt, be, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Now, as we consider this passage again, our primary focus this week is going to be upon verses 6 through 8. Cain is very angry because his offering was not accepted. His countenance falls. He is wroth. God exhorts him, as we considered last time, to humility and to repentance. Do well. If you do well, you will be accepted. God had not rejected Cain's offering because he didn't like Cain or because he liked Abel better or because there was some sort of favoritism or respect of persons, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, and the scriptures testify to us, there is no respect of persons with God. This has nothing to do with Cain. It has everything to do with the choice that Cain made. And God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And God then warning that if he failed to do so, sin was simply waiting to devour him. Now, Cain obviously disregarded God's exhortation here. Cain's anger bore fruit. And the fruit that Cain's anger bore was fruit unto the murder of his brother Abel. And from this, I'd like us to consider in our time today two lessons. And let's dig into them. So lesson number one that we're going to consider is that sin is a heart problem that manifests itself in man's actions. The second one, which I'll read and we'll consider in a little bit, man's natural solution to removing their guilt is not to repent, but to remove the righteous. We'll consider these in turn. First, sin is a heart problem that manifests in man's actions. Sin is kind of like a virus in the human body, when, especially when I'm at the jail. I've used it here uh, in, in our form, in our setting as well. But, but I like the idea of explaining the nature of sin as a virus in the human body. When I am infected with a virus, I know it because of how my body reacts to it. My body exhibits what we call symptoms, right? And those symptoms are not in and of themselves the problem, They are symptoms, signs, with various illnesses affecting us in various ways. So if I wake up one morning and I have a fever, I'm observing my body's response to some abnormality within it. It may be a virus. It may be an infection. But something is wrong that is causing my body to increase the body temperature. And what is wrong is not the fever. The body is responding to the problem with the fever. The fever is a symptom. The fever is not the illness itself. My body is actually raising its temperature, specifically if it's a virus, to reduce the replication rate of that virus to allow my white blood cells to have the capacity to overwhelm and to destroy the virus. And so the fever is actually a part of the process of slowing viral reproduction for the purpose of destroying the virus. So the fever in and of itself is actually a good thing, but it's a good thing that indicates a bad problem. The fever itself can become the problem, right? If my body says, if my body can't get a, get, get a handle on the virus, and so the body temperature keeps rising and rising and rising, and then, and then I have another problem on my hand. But the fever is not the initial problem, not the true problem. The fever is a symptom of the problem, and this is very important. I can treat a fever in any number of ways. I can use a cold compress to cool down my body. If I'm getting very, very hot, they might put me on ice to keep my body cool, to regulate my body temperature. I can take medication, which is intended to inhibit various stimuli in my brain that cause my body temperature to rise. And so cause the fever to go away by taking medication that doesn't solve the viral problem, but does reduce the fever. But it would be a fundamental mistake to think that because I took some medication, my fever went away that this means my body is healed. Because that is not what a fever, that's not what the medication is meant to do. And getting rid of the fever does not get rid of the reason why the fever was there to begin with. Treating symptoms is only a function of making me more comfortable. It might actually help because when I have a very high fever, maybe I can't rest peacefully. So if I take some medication, my fever goes down, my body can rest, and that actually helps the healing process as well. But if I want to be healed, the virus has to go away. The virus has to be killed. 
or the infection needs to be removed. And then my body will no longer need to raise its temperature because the problem for which its temperature was, was raised is now not there. And then the fever will naturally go away. So Cain was angry. His countenance fell. His countenance falling was the first symptom of the anger that was in his heart. Cain was wroth and his countenance fell. God, of course, knew he was angry. But we could have known he was angry as well because we could have seen it written on his face, right? And God warned Cain about this anger, telling him that if he does not do well, if he does not deal with the thing that's happening in his heart, sin was lying at the door to take the thing that was in his heart and to exploit it unto sinful ends. And this is what happened. Sin in his heart gave way to sin in his body. But the sin in his body was only a manifestation of what was already in his heart. And this can manifest in several ways. The most natural way that the manifestation of sin in one's heart manifests itself in one's body is, well, the most natural manifestation of wickedness among the wicked is when man's heart is full of wickedness, they commit wickedness, right? This is the most natural manifestation. In my, a man's heart is wickedness. His thoughts are evil. And so he does evil in his body. And this is the most natural one, right? The wicked do not seek to hide their sin. They, in fact, are quite comfortable with their sin quite often. The actions exhibit all of the manifestations of their sin nature, but they are fine in their sin. They love their sin. They want their sin. They revel in their sin. They see nothing wrong with their sin. They don't see it as sin because they don't fear God and that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, they pursue sin without concern. But of course, this is not the only way that sin manifests itself. The sin that's in our hearts manifests itself in our bodies. When Jesus came, he came among a very moral group of people, the spiritual leaders in Israel. We call them the Pharisees. They were also there with the Sadducees. The Sadducees would have been the theological liberals of the day. Uh, the Pharisees would have been the theological conservatives of the day in Israel. And as he came to these people, specifically speaking to the Pharisees, those uh, who were extremely moral, very high standards, he called them whited sepulchers. The sepulcher being a tomb, but not, not a, a grave, right? Not buried in the ground, but rather a, a tomb that was external so that it, it, it was visual. And, and these tombs would be painted and they would be painted white or uh, made to look beautiful or made to look comely. And so he called them whited sepulchers who were beautifully adorned on the outside. Their outside was beautiful, but inwardly they were full, he said, of dead men's bones. He said that they were as cups which were clean on the outside, but the inside of the cup, the place that you actually, the, the part of the cup you actually use, right? The part of the cup that actually matters, the inside of the cup was filthy. They lived outwardly moral lives, but inwardly they were vile and wicked. And to this you might say, aha, pastor, you see, you are wrong. What is inside doesn't always come out, Right? If inside was full of dead men's bones, if inside was filthy, if inside was full of deceits and lyings and murders, but they were moral on the outside, then what is inside does not come out. And that's one way to look at it. It's a wrong way, but it's one way to look at it. 
And this is what Jesus pointed out, right? Consider what Jesus would say about this in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 16. He said, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, speaking to the Pharisees, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon the altar, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and amice and cumin. And have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, meaning you ought to have uh, tithe of the mint and the anise and the cumin, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. See, when a man sees, when he seeks to mask the symptoms of this wickedness without actually confronting the wickedness himself. When he seeks to mask the symptoms that are in his body that are rooted in the fact that his heart is full of wickedness without actually dealing with the problem of the heart full of wickedness, it manifests itself in a different way, but it, it still manifests itself. This is the man who, and this is what humans do, If they do not revel in their own wickedness and they want to be moral or thought of as moral, but they don't want to deal with the wickedness that is in their heart, they simply rig the game. That's what we do. We redefine what is moral to live up to that standard, which I have then set for myself. I set very high and specific expectations related to the things that I feel capable of doing while redefining the manifestations of my wicked heart to make allowances for them in my life. And God protect us from such a proclivity in our own lives. To spend our days judging others, comparing ourselves to others, holding others to account for their flaws while excusing our own or defining away our sin while elevating the sins of others in order that we might look good when compared to them. But it all comes from the same place. It all comes from the heart. I might be able to mask the symptoms of my sinful infection under the Tylenol of a religious system or the Tylenol of self-discipline or the Tylenol of morality or the Tylenol of rigging the game against my own sinful proclivities by redefining certain things as not sin in order to rig the game against the weight of, of my conscience for those sins. But it hasn't solved the problem. It is only masked the symptoms. Now, we live in a society that fundamentally rejects the idea that man is naturally wicked from the inside. To that end, we are convinced as a society, not necessarily you, not necessarily me, not necessarily us as a church, but as a society, which, of course, we are a part of our society, we are convinced as a society that if only we could change the social conditions of humanity, people would naturally be good people. An idea which doesn't even make sense without God's standard of good, but that's a conversation for another day. So they say, and this is certainly not something we would say, but our society says, if we can only get rid of poverty, then we will get rid of the incentive for man to commit crime, 
and thus will eliminate crime. If we can only get rid of guns, then we will eliminate the means by which people commit crime, and so we will eliminate crime. If we can only get rid of private property, then we will eliminate the compulsion, the motivation, the urge in people to take things from others or to seek unto themselves at another's expense. And so we'll eliminate crime. And all of this discounts the fact that the Bible teaches us that murders and robberies and theft and fraud are not the problem. They are symptoms of the problem. Not, uh, they are not symptoms of the ills of societal policies. They're symptoms of the ills of the human heart and the sin nature. Which means, kind of like a whack-a-mole, right? If I whack that mole, another one's just going to pop up over here. Because I haven't fixed the problem. I've only taken Tylenol to mask the symptoms. No human policy can change the inside of a man. And what man needs is a change from the inside, not the outside. Change happens from the inside out. If the virus dies, the symptoms go away. If sin dies in the heart of a man, then the sinful actions on the outside of a man go away. And as I said, no human policy can change the inside of a man. Only Jesus can change the inside of a man. Cain's actions on that day, he killed his brother, were the natural result of sin in his heart, giving way to manifestations in his body. And the solution today is the same solution that God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, what does it mean to do well? Well, we've already learned from Matthew 23 and Jesus speaking to the Pharisees that learning to do well is not disciplining yourself. It's not creating a moral structure in your life whereby you can attain unto some element of morality. Yes, you will be significantly more culturally acceptable if you do that. If you discipline yourself into the culture's expectations of morality, if you align yourself with culture's laws, you may, may not, but you may not have any problems as it would relate to those things. But it's not going to fix the problem. It's only going to bring about different manifestations. Maybe those manifestations will be in secret. Maybe those manifestations will be through you rigging the game. But the manifestations will still be there because you can't cheat that system. If we do well, however, we will be accepted. And what does it mean to do well? Well, that means to align ourselves with God's design, to deal with the inside, and then the outside will take care of itself. And what is God's design? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what Jesus came to do, right? To die on the cross, to pay for our sin, to cleanse us from the inside, to clean the heart, to make our heart whiter than snow, to forgive us our sins, to wipe the debt clean, to cleanse us from the inside out. Any and everyone who will come to him by faith to be forgiven. So that the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so we allow Jesus to clean us from the inside out. We acknowledge that we cannot fix ourselves, that we have a problem, that there is a sickness inside of us that no amount of of, of religious Tylenol or moral Tylenol is going to actually fix. 
and that we don't just want to mask our symptoms to, expo to, to, to come out in some other way or to come out in another day. Maybe you're doing well for a while and then things go bad and you say, this is a really bad time for my Tylenol to wear off, but that's the time it's going to wear off. And then you're going to find yourself in a bad place once again. Get the problem fixed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is that solution. And he proved that he could do it. Grave, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? The resurrection proves that Jesus conquered death. Not just death in the physical sense, but death in the spiritual sense. Jesus conquered the very thing that was lost when Adam sinned. That separation from God. Jesus conquered it. He killed death. Death died. But we have to come to him. We have to do well. If we do well, will we not be accepted? So we allow Jesus to cleanse us from the inside out, to give us a new heart, to truly change us. And that's point number one. Sin is a heart problem that manifests in man's actions. If you're seeing sin in your life, that's not the problem per se. That's the symptom. What's the problem? Maybe it's that you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. For many in this room, that's not going to be the problem. The problem will be something else. The problem will be that you are walking out of fellowship. The problem will be that you are grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit of God. The problem is that you have unconfessed sin in your life. The problem is that because the wages of sin is death, and that verse is not just an, a verse for unbelievers, it is a verse for believers as well, that as you step into sin, you separate yourself from the life of God, you separate yourself from the the, from abiding in Him and from walking in the Spirit and you will manifest works of the flesh. And when you see those works of the flesh, you know there's something wrong. And the solution is to figure it out. What is it? Get it right. Confess it. Repent it. Repent of it. Abide. Walk in the Spirit. And watch as the symptoms go away. So first point, sin is a heart problem that manifests in man's action. Second, man's natural solution to removing their guilt is not to repent, but to remove the righteous. This final point goes out unto two ends. First, it gives us insight into the human condition. And second, uh, it, it, it's a warning to us as followers of Jesus Christ. First, regarding human nature, a common tactic of the guilty conscience is to pacify my guilt by redirecting my focus to something or someone else. I can remain distracted by all of the flaws of others. I can, to a degree, ignore my own guilt and shame by focusing in on the problems of others. This is actually a big part of what we see in our society now. The 24-hour news cycle, the way social media works, the fantastic nature of social media, the, 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 the nature of social media that, that trends people toward division that trends people toward uh, those things that are, are, are more fantastic in nature. Uh, why? Well, because those are the things that get clicks. And that's where the advertisement dollars come from, right? So it's a, it's a system built for that. But what's actually happening there? I'm reading in my echo chamber, constantly getting angry at the other side, constantly getting angry at these wicked people and those wicked people and this wicked thing and that wicked thing and that thing and that, that debate and that argument and that person who said that wrong thing and the, that person who, 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 who did that wrong thing and all of that serves to distract me 
from me. And this is very common in our own lives as well. I see it often among married couples where a husband or wife is guilty over their own wrongs, but it manifests an anger toward their spouse. They fail to uphold the, their responsibilities in marriage. They're upset, but this anger manifests in being upset at everything that your spouse is doing wrong. Because you, your deceitful heart, really, not, I mean you, but it's your, your deceitful heart, because Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your deceitful heart diverts your attention away from your own guilt by heaping guilt upon others, judging them, shaming them, blaming them. It's common among children where a child will seek to cover the guilt of their own disobedience or disrespect by highlighting the flaws in a parent or in a sibling, attempting to pacify the guilt of their own conscience by diverting their guilt or imposing it upon others. Are other people flawed? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, oftentimes we will even try to make someone angry that is doing right or try to make someone who's doing right do wrong specifically so that we can feel better about the fact that we're doing it wrong. People are flawed. And if I put my mind to it, I can always find something or someone else to blame for my actions or someone or something else that is worse than me by some, at least, uh, at, at best, arbitrary moral standard. But it's still a lie, isn't it? When my child comes to me because he hit his sister and I ask him about why he hit his sister and he said, she hit me first. That may or may not be true. But as far as the question I asked him, it actually doesn't matter, does it? A wrong committed against me is not an excuse to commit another wrong. I still choose to do the wrong regardless of what compelled me to do that wrong. So then by saying she hit me first... What the conscience is doing is saying, I had a right to do wrong because of a wrong done against me. I am pacifying the guilt of my actions by pointing to someone else's actions. I am pacifying the shame of my position by diverting or directing attention to the shame of someone else's position. Or my child might recognize that they've done wrong and then they will act in such a way to try to get me upset so that then their conscience can be pacified to the fact that they, don't, they did wrong by the fact that daddy is upset. Therefore, daddy is wronging me. And why do they do that? It's a tactic that our deceitful heart uses to alleviate the pressure on the conscience by diverting our attention to someone else's wrongs. And the question that confronts us first is, where do we do this in our own lives? Where has our heart sought to distract from its own wicked choices and actions by diverting our attention to the faults of others? Where have we chosen to blame others for our own sinful choices? And as we seek unto the Lord for this, as the Spirit of God lays these things in our hearts, what is the solution? Humility is always the solution. Humble yourself and repent. Quit looking at the problems of others and deal with yourself. Repent before God. Repent before the men you have wronged. If there are those who you have wronged, humble yourself. Find forgiveness. Reject the lies of your heart. Trust the word of God.
So we see, first of all, that human nature predisposes me to deflect guilt and shame by blaming and judging others. But second, this morning, as it relates to this concept, man's natural solution to removing their guilt is not to repent, but to remove the righteous. This second idea is more to the point with Cain and Abel. The unrighteous heart is often convinced that the problem of their guilt does not lie with them and their actions, but it lies with those who aren't doing what they are doing. When someone around them refuses to sin as they sin, they feel guilty because their actions look bad in light of the actions of one who is doing right. And in my heart, instead of saying, wow, I am doing wrong and I know I'm doing wrong because I look bad in light of the person who's doing right, the deceitful and wicked hearts that we have says, that guy's a problem and he needs to go because he's making me look bad, because he's making me feel bad. When someone around me refuses to sin and I begin to see that person as the problem and my heart convinces me that if only that person were removed or if only he joined with me or only if he accepted what I'm doing, then my guilt would go away. And so I build within myself an anger not at myself for the fact that I'm doing wrong, for my sin, for the thing that looks bad on me, but rather at the person who's doing right because he's making me look bad. So Jesus would warn in John 15 verses 18 through 20. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Jesus is not saying that they wouldn't have sinned if Jesus had not said anything, but rather the idea is that as Jesus proclaimed righteousness, it amplified their sin. We talked about that when we had the message on the conscience, right? That the conscience is enlivened by the truth, enlivened by the light, like those phosphorescent watch hands, right? It absorbs that light and then it reflects it back. It's brought into an excited state. It's technically what's happening there. And that same idea... That Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. The idea there is that, they, that their sin was amplified. The reality of their sin was amplified in their hearts by being told that it is sin. And now they have no cloak for their sin because it's out in the light. Verse 23. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works that which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father, but this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus says that if you follow Jesus Christ, the world will hate you as it hated him. Now, uh, well, we'll get there in a minute. Why? Because as you follow Jesus, your deeds are righteous. And your righteous deeds convict their hearts of their unrighteousness. But they don't want to stop their wickedness. 
And instead, their heart tells them that the problem is not their sin, but rather the problem is the fact that you don't do as they do. That you are thus judging them, or you are intolerant, or you are degrading them. You are the problem. And they'll hate you for it. And is this what happened to Cain on that day? We actually don't have to speculate. The Bible tells us outright. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11-13. through 13. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Why did Cain kill Abel? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Cain killed his brother because Cain's works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. Cain killed his brother because when he compared his works to Abel's works, his works were shown to be wrong. But his deceitful heart convinced him that the problem was not that he had done wrong. The problem was that Abel had done right, that Abel existed. And if he could only get rid of Abel's existence, he could remove the standard that Abel elevated in his life and then his guilt and his shame at his own evil would go away. And John's conclusion here is the warning which we get today. Marvel not, Christian, if the world hate you. Don't be surprised when society says that Christians are the problem when we say that sodomy is sin. Don't be surprised when society says Christians are the problem when we say that the earth is not going to be destroyed by pollution. In a sense, global warming will be the destruction of the earth. God will melt the earth with a fervent heat, but it's not going to be because we drive cars. Don't be surprised when society says that we are the problem when we tell them that killing children in the womb is murder. Because the conscience of the unbeliever testifies to their perversions and their lies and their pragmatism through the exercise and the speaking of righteousness among God's people. The testimony of the righteous naturally condemns the actions of the wicked. I don't even have to open my mouth for that. So don't be surprised then when they do as Cain did. Hate us. Why? Because their works are evil and ours are righteous. Instead of repenting of the things that are weighing down on their hearts, they will instead turn their anger against those who refuse to follow them, join them, affirm them, accept their sin. And this anger has historically, and indeed still does today, manifest itself in much of the world. It has justified wholesale persecution of Christians in any and every way. And we have been blessed in this country to be shielded by law from much of this. But know without question that such a condition will not last forever. And when finally society has been transformed enough, calloused enough, it will not be the conservatives who will be targeted. Take note of this. It will not be the religious that will be targeted. Take note of that. It will be the Christians that will be targeted. It will be those, not who represent religion, not who represent conservative values. It will be those who represent the truths of Jesus Christ that will be targeted. Because they hated our Lord. And if they hated our Lord, 
they will hate us as well. This should not work in us a martyr's complex, a victim complex. We do not go looking for this hatred, nor do we, and this is an important one, nor do we necessarily, should, should we believe that something is wrong if we aren't hated? And this is a place that we can get a little bit off. We read these things and we say, oh, I'm not hated enough. Let's go get hated some more. No. Thank God that we live in a country that is founded upon Judeo-Christian principles that has, though it's obviously changing and has been changing really since the, the end of World War II, that has still culturally a tremendous amount of acceptance for biblical values that still has a, a large number proportionally of followers of Jesus Christ as its citizens. And so it's not surprising that we are not under unique persecution at this time. But, of course, for those of you that are, if, if you are paying attention, and don't pay attention too closely because it will make you really sad. But if you are paying attention to the things that are happening around us, this is happening, especially after the Roe v. Wade thing. They call us Christo-fascists. And there's a lot of articles in mainstream newspapers, well-read newspapers, calling for the end of Christo-fascism, which is biblical Christianity. And we should not be surprised by that. Because Jesus said it would happen. But if we are doing right, they will hate us because their works are evil and ours are righteous. And this is the exhortation which we are called unto today. An exhortation which the entire letter of 1 Peter actually considers, but which I just want to give you a, a small snippet of in our remaining time today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 says this. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, not suffer for your sin, suffer for righteousness' sake, but, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But, this is the contrast, this is what we do instead of being afraid of their terror and being troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, set him apart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the, uh, a reason of the hope that, that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they will call us the evildoers. Get used to that. We probably already are. It's been, that's been happening for quite a while now. That the, though the, that, excuse me, I'll go back here. That whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. On that day in Genesis 4, Cain killed Abel. Cain killed Abel because Cain's works were evil and Abel's works were righteous. But far better, Christian, that Abel suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Far better that Abel was murdered for righteousness' sake than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so it is with us. As we live these Christian lives, some of us will face a manner of suffering for our obedience to Christ. Some of you may have already faced that. I don't believe any of us in this room have faced the kind of persecution that we would think of in other places of the world. And there's a tremendous amount of it in other places of the world. We're not necessarily there. And thank God for that. We don't have to be guilty about that. But some of you throughout your life 
will face some manner of suffering. Maybe that's the loss of a friend. Maybe that's having to let go of uh, blood relations, family members, uh, and, 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 and have a, a separation of fellowship with them because there's just no common ground and, or, or they're angry at you or they dislike you because of your viewpoints now. Maybe that is the loss of a job where you have to stand for righteousness sake because you will not bow to the intersectional mob and they say, well, then go away and you have to go away. We, we may suffer some measure of suffering for our obedience to Christ. And it is possible that we all may face suffering one day for our profession of faith. But we are not better than our Lord. They persecuted him. They will persecute us. They killed him. They will kill us. We don't go looking for it. We don't make ourselves odious in the eyes of men in order to elevate it because we feel as though we're more godly if we're more hated. That's not how that works. We'll follow the teachings of Jesus. Let come what may. And the guilty hearts of the guilty will hate us for that. But far better if the will of God be so that we are hated for well-doing than for evil-doing. If we've got to suffer... Let it be because we chose to follow Christ. And God help us to be well-doers. To love God and love one another. To, as much as lieth within us, live peaceably with all men. To honor the laws of our land. To honor the leaders of our land. To honor our masters. To honor our parents. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To bear a good testimony in the world, both in word and in deed. To hold to the truths of God's word, both in word and in deed. This will not stop the wicked from hating you. As a matter of fact, it might make them hate you more. But every once in a while, there will be someone who asks for answers regarding the hope that lies in you. And on that day, perhaps, just perhaps, you gained another for the kingdom. Our righteousness will compel them to hate us, not for evil doing, but because, like Cain, their works are evil and ours are righteous. So expect it. Be ready for it. The Lord will give us the grace to handle it when it comes. This has been the legacy of the followers of righteousness since the beginning. Going all the way back to the first man and woman and their child who suffered for righteousness' sake. For as long as God would see fit to spare us from such a fate in the West, we will gladly live in peace among men. Until the day that, our, that because of our righteousness, for our righteousness, they will hate us, they will blame us, they will persecute us. And on that day, our actions won't change. We will continue doing as we have done. We served God yesterday. We will serve him today. And by his grace, we will serve him tomorrow as well. And their reaction might change. And our legal protections might go away. God forbid, but they might go away. But if they do, it changes nothing of what Christ has called us to do. And let us take care, however, that as we look out and we perhaps even prepare ourselves in a, in a, a, a way for that day, let us take care that we're not actually exhibiting the same thing in our own lives. Let us take care that we are not comparing ourselves to others and hating them because they're doing right and we're doing wrong. Let us take care that we're not doing this with our siblings or our spouse, with those in our church. 
Let us take care that we're not falling into this idea that we are going to be constantly distracted by being angry at the other side so that I don't have to think about what I'm doing, my own hypocrisies, my own problems. Take care that we don't get dragged down into the mud with them, knowing that we are called unto righteousness to be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good, as Paul wrote. We sang about that in Lead On, O King Eternal, this morning. Let me get the book here for a moment. It struck me in that second verse. This is a, 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 a song that connects the Christian life to a battle. It's not uncommon for these spiritual warfare fight songs of sorts. But notice what that second verse that we sang said. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. Here it is. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy we watch till Jesus comes. Those are the weapons of our warfare. Not carnal, but spiritual. Let us remember that sin is a heart problem, first of all, not a body problem. Let us be careful that we are not allowing our hearts to shield us from the guilt of our sin by blaming others for their sins or by spending so much time angry at others specifically so that we don't have to think about where we stand. Let us remember that the sins that we do in our body, whether open in their wickedness or hidden behind a veneer of morality or religion or social acceptance or whatever it might be, begin first in the heart. And if we want to deal with them, they must be dealt with in the heart through humility and repentance. And so let us learn some lessons from Cain and Abel. Let us learn these essential lessons of human nature. They're just as valid today as they were 10,000 years ago. And may it compel us unto a disposition of readiness unto obedience. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.